Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I think that's recording. It has the recording button next to it. Okay. Okay. Should we get going? Yes. Welcome to the final episode of Fiction Predictions first season. I'm Sam. And I'm Nick. Oh, I can't actually believe this is the uh, the final episode of the first season. It's been a wild ride. It feels like that weird paradox where it's gone on a long time, but it's also happened really quickly. I mean, the good thing is that this is not the end of Fiction Predictions. Um, we're going to come back with a couple of bonus episodes during the summer, and then we're going to come back bigger and bolder than ever for our season two later in the year. We've got some pretty big ideas um, and some things we definitely want to focus on. No, Dad, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Just give it five yeah, seconds. Yeah, but you've got to tell them the whole story. I'm not going to tell them the whole story. All right. I was going to say. Okay. So, for our final episode, we're going out with a bang. We're going to tackle one of the greatest novels ever written in English, and we're giving it a bit of a twist. <laughs> Cue. I'm cueing you. All right. All right. Yes, yeah, so we enlisted the help of our good friend and former colleague, Isabel Hamilton. So I was an intern uh, for Sam, who was my editor. I now work at Business Insider, where I've been uh, just over a year covering tech and uh, AI, robotics, the fun stuff. Her dad also happens to be Andy Hamilton, who's a beloved English writer, actor and comedian. I am Andy Hamilton, father of Isabel, and I write uh, comedies for radio and TV. Here's a clip of Andy on Have I Got News For You. I'm a pirate in a children's cartoon. You are exactly, yes. Mm. So, um, do, you, do you remember what you're called? I'm called... Yes, of course I remember. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a proper artist. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Captain Squid. So we're going to be talking today about Catch-22. It was Isabel's first time reading Catch-22. Andy first read it when he was 17, fascinated with its unconventional, almost collage-like style of writing. He was kind enough to reread it just for us. Thanks, Andy. I think you put it on a list of one of your favourite books was one of the reasons I thought Did it was. Did I? Good. Yeah. It is one of my favourite books. Yeah, <laughs> it's a book that, that had an influence on me. Yes, that's true. Our discussion also coincides with the UK release of the Catch-22 miniseries uh, that features the likes of George Clooney, Hugh Laurie and Christopher Abbott. It first aired on Hulu in the States and just came out on Channel 4 here in the UK. 
stuck. Look, you gotta help me. You can ground me if I'm crazy, right? Oh, sure, I have to. I have to ground anyone who's crazy. Then ground me. I'm crazy. You're not crazy. But I am. Ask anyone. They'll tell you how crazy I am. Yeah, but they're crazy. Then why don't you ground them? Why don't they ask me to ground them? Because they're crazy, of that's why. Of course they're crazy. I just told you they're crazy, didn't I? And you can't have crazy people decide whether you're crazy or not. Catch-22. Anyone who wants to get out of combat duty isn't really crazy. Catch-22 specifies that a concern for one's own safety in the face of danger, real and immediate, is the process of a rational mind. What? Orr's crazy, and therefore he can get out of flying combat missions. All he has to do is ask. But as soon as he asks, he's no longer crazy, and so he has to fly more missions. That's some catch, that Catch-22. It's the best there is. Catch-22 is a novel that's about the Second World War. And it's based on Heller's own experience as a World War II bombardier in Italy. But the book is most often associated with the absurdity of the Vietnam War. But in many ways, the book remains really relevant today. Hello, good evening. One of the men here on stage will become our next Prime Minister. What are you going to do, so what you do about the... To, what are you going to do about the... Some people have said that the backstop is Catch-22. But actually, the way in which we resolve it is not just about... We wanted to explore what happens when a phrase captures our collective imagination so powerfully, even when used incorrectly sometimes, that it jumps out the page to acquire a life of its own. Catch-22 keeps coming up in different scenarios, and it seems quite plastic. Heller uses it as a, a kind of icon for any moment of absurdist lunacy. He sees it everywhere. Yeah. So we wanted to test how the valuation of this great realist novel changes according to the vantage point of the reader, whether Isabel and Andy would draw different conclusions about any lasting Catch-22s we find today. Which, of course, they did. And I'm going to crowbar another tech angle in here. Uh, it's not perfect, but uh, let, let me have a go. A source of concern that I have to write about quite frequently is something called algorithmic bias. Yes. So I've probably bored you with this before, but I'll, bo- I'll bore the listeners as well. That's right, I can do with the sleep. Okay, here's what we're going to do this episode. In part one, Isabel and her dad pick up the story from their kitchen table in Wimbledon. It's a really fascinating conversation that includes everything from algorithms right through to the nightmarish bureaucratic processes that can sometimes ensnare people. Then, in part two, we're going to dive deeper into one of the examples Andy gives about a contemporary Catch-22 here in the UK, the Windrush scandal. And that's a classic sort of bureaucratic, absurdist system, which could easily be something out of a Joseph Heller book. For that, we talked to one of the reporters who broke the story. My name's Amelia Gentleman. I'm a reporter at The Guardian. It's a truly shocking story about a deliberate government policy leading thousands of people to question their very existence. Okay, part one. Here we go. Well, Isabel, thank you for coming into the studio. Pleasure. How, how was it interviewing your dad? Uh, about as much of a hassle as most conversations with him, really. So, this is Fiction Predictions. Uh, right. Is that the know. name of the podcast? <laughs> It's <laughs> a good man because so it rhymes. Yeah, yeah, it does. It and does rhyme. Things that rhyme are easier to remember. Yeah, that's right. okay. Fiction predictions. Okay, yeah, I've got that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just glad he didn't throw any socks at me because that happens when he gets bored. It's a good. It's a good readily available weapon. A sock. Hmm. Yeah, but that didn't happen during the conversation, so he must have been relatively engaged. We're on fiction predictions, yeah. so we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about whether or not Catch Twenty Two predicts anything 
about the modern day. I think it was good to have the two generations talking about it because, well, it came out when Dad was very little, but it was, a sort of, I think he mentions in our chat, it was sort of seen as a Vietnam book almost, even though it's about World War Two. You know, I first read it age 17. And, you know, one of the reasons I got so excited about it was the fact that it he was so confident about breaking the rules, if you like, of... Um, conventional storytelling he he was happy to sort of make it jagged i mean the extraordinary thing on rereading it is how often he even changed styles that's what i loved about it was the was the storytelling confidence of saying you know um i'm going to tell you this story it's going to be chaotic there's going to be loads of characters but then that's what it's like in the middle of a war. You meet loads of people. They come and go. A lot of them are in a bit of a state. It's None of it makes any sense. Um, and so, you know, he, the book is honest in that sense, in that it reflects the state of mind of someone going through that experience. So he read it when he was 17. I read it at 24. And then he rereads it. So I think it was cool to have the interplay there. There's a TV miniseries that has already gone out in the US starring George Clooney, and I think executive produced by him as well. Uh-huh. Uh, and the writer of that adaptation had a quote from the premiere that I thought I would read. Yeah. So he said that Catch-22 predicted essentially today's politics. He's, he said the book has a certain universality in the sense that it's always a good time to talk about the insanity of war. But it's also really relevant in terms of the insanity of bureaucracy and red tape. I think that's a thing we feel more and more in this world, the sense of powerlessness with these big corporations and structures. And speaking about corporations and structures, it's also about the relationship between capitalism and war. So in many ways, the novel is just the origin story of the present geopolitical here and now. And it's very resonant with what's going on in this mad, mad world today. Perhaps the sort of crowning achievement of the book, I think, is is that it it gives such a lucid and um, imaginative portrayal of um, the way that human nature works within systems. There are various bureaucratic systems that are set up by the war, that, that come into being because of the war, and the systems are flawed to begin with, but the flaws are magnified by human nature. So if you take, there is a character, Colonel Cathcart, who makes Yossarian squadron fly many, many more missions than any other squadron. There's no military reason for them to do it uh, in terms of the, the, the limit on the number of squadrons they need to fly. But he does it because of a fundamental characteristic of human nature, which is that he wants to please, he wants to mm. impress. He is a, a, a weak man in a position of responsibility and he wants to impress... Um, he either wants to get in, he wants to get mentioned in magazines, or he wants to get noticed by his superiors, and he wants to get promoted. And that is, of course, if you look at any system, where, whether it's communism or, or whatever, any system, where the purity of the system often breaks down is on the kind of venal individual motives of the people inside the system. Now, what did you mean when you said that we couldn't punish you? When, sir? I'm asking you the questions you're answering. Yes, sir. You think we brought you here so that you could ask me questions and I would answer them? No, sir. Then what the hell did you mean when you said that we could not 
punish him. I'm sorry, sir. I never said that you couldn't punish me. Now you're telling us when you did say it. I'm asking you to tell us when you didn't say it. When didn't you say we couldn't punish you? I always didn't say you couldn't That's a bare-faced lie! You whispered that we couldn't punish you to that dumb son of a bitch standing right there! Oh, no, sir. I whispered to him that you couldn't find me guilty. Well, I must be stupid because the distinction escapes me! Well, you're a witty son of a bitch, aren't you? No, sir. No, sir. You're calling me a liar no, now? No, sir. No what, sir? No what? No what, what sir? So... Yeah, the writer of, the, of that adaptation, he's right in saying it's hugely relevant, but then he's always going to be relevant. I mean, mm. the fact that he said it's universal. There's never going to be a time when Catch-22 is not relevant because human mm. human society is, is built that way. Read me back the last line. Read me back the last line. Not my last line, somebody else's. Read me back the last line. That's my last line again. Oh, no, sir, that's my last line. There's an obituary in the paper today, right, a guy called um, Richard Moore, Liberal MP. I was reading this just before you got here. And it said that um, he was in the artillery in the Second World War, although he spent most of the war in hospital with a heart condition, although it was subsequently discovered he didn't have a heart condition because he'd been confused with another soldier. And that is, in fact, there, 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 there is a chapter in Catch-22 when Yossarian and a friend of his are mucking about impersonating other patients. And, and as a result of that, the other patient gets sent home instead of Yossarian. So, you know, those... It will always be relevant. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's relevant now in as much as yeah. it always was and is. So you mentioned the miniseries starring George Clooney mm-hmm. and um, about how potent a time it is that it's being adapted today uh, and how specifically Catch-22 has a very sort of sentient um, relationship with the present in, in, in particular. So would you, would you say that that makes it a sort of a more viable fiction prediction contender? There's definitely a sense at the moment that we are on a runaway train. And I think that vibes very well with Catch-22. And you've got all these inscrutable decisions being made. I don't know to what extent that's actually changed or to what extent people just feel like it has. Um, But certainly having Trump in charge of the White House feels like having Colonel Cathcart or one of those other bonkers generals in charge. So I think he's he's hit a nerve there. So, yeah, to explain that out a bit more, the book follows um, the story of John Yossarian, often just referred to as Yossarian, um, who does not want to be part of the war anymore. He thinks he's done enough and he doesn't see the point in getting killed for a war that's he thinks already won. Yes. And he cannot get out of his obligations because of Catch-22, which is cited to him by the doctor on the base. And the reason is that Yossarian says to the doctor, I'm insane, you have to ground me if I'm insane, don't you? And the doctor says, yes, I do have to ground you if you're insane, but if you are sane enough to ask me not to fly any more missions, you're by definition not insane and you have to keep flying missions. Yeah. So that's Catch-22. As the book goes on, though, like Catch-22 keeps coming up in different scenarios and it seems quite plastic. Yeah, I mean, it, Hella uses it as a a kind of icon for any moment of absurdist lunacy. He sees it everywhere. Yeah. And he sees, because he's a young man in a heightened state, 
in a very hostile and intense environment. He he he's very he's very sensitised to seeing all the all the insanities around him, and he sees it everywhere. When you read it on your own, mm. um, and you were trying to sort of analyse it through the perspective of fiction predictions, um, did you think it was a good example? And did your opinion change once you talked to your dad? Yes, um, I'll be honest. I read it totally blind. I had no idea what it was about. I didn't read the blurb. I didn't read the intro. But anyway, I don't know. It starts out in the weird hospital wing scene where they're all insane and there's a guy who's completely cased in um, surgical tape and they're not even sure if there's someone inside there. And because of how weird it was, I assumed it was some dystopian fiction. And then quickly it became clear that it was World War II. <laughs> and I felt very silly. But also, yeah, I think there's um, it's such an incisive look at the intersection between capitalism and war and the morality of both and how it sort of degrades everyone and dehumanizes everyone. There's a point in the book, mm. sort of in the third act, when Yossarian is really starting to lose it. Yes. He comes into a flat which used to be a brothel that all the soldiers attended very regularly. Yes. And it's been totally ransacked. It's been, it's been raided by the military police. Yeah. yeah. And there's only one woman left who keeps saying Cash 22, Cash 22. Yeah. They said they were allowed to do this because of Cash 22. Yeah. Which doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Um, compared to the definition that we gave at the beginning of no. this recording, which is it's got to be a kind of paradoxical yes. problem. Um, and Yasarian realises that Cat 22 isn't real. Mm. And this is what he says. He says, Cat 22 did not exist. He was positive of that, but it made no difference. What did matter was that everyone thought it existed. And that was much worse. For there was no object or text to ridicule or refute, to accuse, criticise, attack, amend, hate, revile, spit at, rip to shreds, trample upon, or burn up. Yeah. So that's what really gets to him, is that because it's an imagined thing, he can't attack it. Yes, and it's because it's a mentality. It's mm. a, it's um, a way of looking at things. Yeah. Yeah. There's no. There can't be any transparency with Cash Two because it simply doesn't exist. But I think a lack of transparency in systems mm. is exactly what will drive people round the bend. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is a good site for fiction predictions and also you've got so many characters and you've got so many different things going on you've got so much material to work with that i think it was a good candidate at the moment people are very worried about ai yes rightly or wrongly lots of people fear the consequences of ai blossoming or yeah. ballooning how we want to see it yeah people have a lot of um preconceptions about it that are based in science fiction mm. i'm afraid i can't do that I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Casual Space Odyssey reference. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You didn't do the voice. I'm yeah. afraid I can't yeah. do that. I'm afraid I can't do that. I'm afraid I can't do that. A source of concern that I have to write about quite frequently is something called algorithmic bias. Yes. So I've probably bored you with this before, but I'll, bo I'll bore the listeners as well. That's I could do with the sleep. It's yeah, fine. you catch a kit like yeah. you were when I came in. <laughs> um, so... Algorithmic bias, the thing is that uh, when you build an algorithm, which is an essential part of building an artificially intelligent system, uh, you give it lots and lots of data, generally speaking. Uh. You know, you'll, you'll crunch all the numbers and you'll feed them in and it will spit out something predictive, for example. Uh. 
Yep. So, for example, and this is drawing from real life, a real life example, if you wanted to predict how likely it was that someone who had committed a crime might commit another crime upon yes. release, you would feed lots and lots of data from people, from re-offenders. Yes. And then you would be able to take a new offender for yeah. the first time, plug it in. And assess their likelihood for recidivism. Yeah, it would spit yeah. out a percentage. Yeah, yeah. Right? And this is something that really was trialled in America. And ProPublica, um, the investigative journalism site, found that the system was inherently racist. Yes. And the thing is, an algorithm is, by definition, neutral, of course. It hasn't got an agenda. But if you give an algorithm lots of historical data, which is ingrained with yeah. things like racial bias, yes. then the algorithm will reflect that. It's absolutely reminiscent of Catch Me Too, because I think the case study that ProPublica focused in on were two individuals. Um, one was a young black woman who had taken, a, I think even a kid's scooter, and a, a white man, I believe he was in his 40s, who had stolen a couple hundred dollars worth of equipment from a homeware store, I think. Mm. And she was deemed to be a much more likely target for recidivism than he was. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a world where she would be informed of this, how do you fight back against it? Because there's no transparency there. It's literally just computers spat it out. 
But I mean, that's a problem that's confronted human beings since the creation of the state, isn't it? I mean, that's part of the reality of being an ordinary person in most societies is that you don't have the power or the recourse to to object to the injustices that the system might inflict on you. That's true, but I have a counterpoint which is specific to these kind of systems, which is that part of the problem with systems that have become completely ingrained with algorithmic bias is that even the people who design them might not understand why they're doing what they're doing. Oh, well, that, yes. Because, because of the way that they're, they're built and the, yeah, how yeah. complex now they that, are. That, that is um, the speed and complexity yeah. of the, the, the systems. I think you're right. I think that is yeah. a modern phenomenon. You know, there would have been Egyptian slaves... <laughs> Complaining about a lack of transparency, so but things. Today. Hey, yeah, I'm just trying. I'm just trying to look at the bigger pictures. <laughs> trying to paint a bigger canvas. You know, this thing of trying to predict mm. is based on what's happened before. You know, I forget where I read it, but I remember many years ago saying that on current trends in 125,000 years' time, the entire human race will be Elvis impersonators. It's kind of fertile soil for anything that resembles. Catch twenty two style bureaucratic systems. Where yeah. it's getting more and more complex. Then that's a classic sort of bureaucratic mm. um, yeah. absurdist system. Sorry. So Mum is trying to sneak past she's the doing, You're very welcome to join in. <laughs> she's she's got cream cheese. We're gonna have to do this again. Nick and Sam, sorry. Mum is just putting some stuff in the fridge. Okay. The thing is, how, how do you mention the biggest parallel, most important parallel in modern life? What's that? When you try to get tickets to go to Chelsea, you can't get a ticket unless you've got enough loyalty points. So you can't but go you to can't, Chelsea unless you, you can't get watch enough loyalty Chelsea points unless you have bought enough tickets. That's a great catch-22. I enjoyed your your mum's cameo. I thought she was, yeah. she brought some uh, some interesting perspective. She to brought it. a brilliant example of a catch twenty two. I can't believe Dad actually didn't think of that. Seeing as Chelsea is such a part of his life. When I asked you, well, that's if you're a club member. Yeah, but still, that's... even if you're not a club member. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you you, you in can't... order to get tickets to Chelsea, Chelsea you have to yeah. have the loyalty points, but you can't get them without getting. Also, tickets. there's a lot of violence at Chelsea, which is another parallel we catch. Yeah, that's true. Look, you know, that's true. True. That's Thank you for that. That's an excellent contribution. Thank yeah, you. Really, Mum should have done the interview. Yeah, they discovered this Kafkaesque system whereby you have to earn loyalty points, but to get loyalty points, you have to go, and to go, you need loyalty points. Did you come away from the process thinking that Catch-22 is overused today? Uh, So, yeah, I kind of disagreed with Dad on this one because, yeah, strictly speaking, the term should be restricted to anything that's a paradoxical problem where you need to do one thing, but in order to do that thing, you need to have already done the other thing or they're mutually exclusive. Um, Whereas people tend to use it just as that's a tricky problem, it's Catch-22. However, in the book, actually... The meaning of Catch-22 does get broadened out to mean anything, because by the end, the protagonist realises that Catch-22 doesn't exist. So it can be used to justify any level of violence. Um, There's also something I think we should talk about, because um, it's the elephant in the room. Read Catch-22 and modern politics. Right. Can you guess where I'm going? No. I think in terms of 
predicting the modern day or somehow sort of laying the groundwork for it. I think what's interesting is what you said about these bureaucratic systems that become, that are flawed to begin with. Yes. And they get magnified by human nature. Yes. Um, I think... Well, what do you think? Is That's exactly what I meant. That's what I meant. I should have said it like that. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about whether or not there's more or less bureaucracy than when Heller was writing? Because now we have so much more to facilitate bureaucracy, like governmental bureaucracy. I find it really hard to gauge. I mean, obviously, you know, when you get something like the Windrush scandal, yeah. you look at that and you think, well, that is a textbook case. Somebody at the top decided, right, we're going to have a policy. I'll put a, I'll put a name on it. Um, what was it called? Hostile environment. <laughs> you know, so you create the, the policy and you give it a name. And then what happens is that it's enforced by lots of people who are trying to hit targets. People are probably on placed on bonuses on the number of people who get chucked out like they do with the system for asylum seekers. And then you get these absurd... Uh, situations which could easily be something out of a Joseph Heller book where people are asked just can you just prove that you that you the last 30 years of your life have been real and if they couldn't present very detailed evidence that they'd arrived here uh, legally even though they had been here you know 40 years or whatever um, they were deported mm. and I mean that is that is a classic sort of Joseph Heller type catch what's well, a sort of catch twenty two. That's the end of part one. Isabel, thanks so much for coming on the pod. And thank you, Andy, for joining us in what was a thrilling experiment at a intergenerational read that covered a lot of ground. Yeah, it's been really interesting. That's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Isabel. Thank you both. We found the conversation that touched upon the Windrush scandal really fascinating. This notion of having to prove your existence in the country. So we wanted to dig a little deeper and try to understand what exactly happened and who were the people affected. We talked to the Guardian's Amelia Gentleman, who's been covering the story for the last 18 months. She's also about to release a book about it. So I've just finished writing a book called The Windrush Betrayal, Exposing the Hostile Environment, which is about this investigation and which is also um, an analysis of what went wrong in terms of government policy that led to this problem. So it's a story of the investigation, it's a story of the lives of the people affected, and it's um, being published by The Guardian and Faber, and it comes out on October the 3rd. The story of the Windrush scandal starts all the way back in 2012. After Theresa May, who was then Home Secretary, announced that she wanted to create a very hostile environment for illegal migrants in the UK, which meant um, that individuals um, who had moved to the UK needed to prove that they were here legally and needed to show uh, documents on many, many more occasions than we've ever previously um, been used to in this country. And the name Windrush comes from a ship called Empire Windrush, which arrived in the UK from the Caribbean in 1948. This scandal got the same um, name because it concerns really the next generation along of people um, coming from Commonwealth countries. Um, so they didn't actually travel on the Windrush, but it's it's the same pattern of migration. So many of them um, were coming in the 
1950s in the 1960s from the Caribbean and also from other Commonwealth countries coming to the UK entirely legally. Um, the, the scandal became well known last year in, in 2018 when it became obvious that thousands and thousands of people who'd come in the 1950s, in the 1960s, lived their entire adult life here, had suddenly been um, wrongly classified by the Home Office as illegal immigrants and were um, finding that they were getting letters from the Home Office telling them that they were here illegally and that they were at risk of detention and liable to be deported back to the country that they'd um, left half a century earlier. It really is a bizarrely contemporary Catch-22 scenario, a paradoxical situation where there is no escape. One of the um, people I spoke to had been in um, immigration detention for five weeks, and he said he kept trying to tell the officers in the detention centre that they'd made a mistake. He'd been in Britain for 50 years, that he was a British citizen, and that somehow an error had been made. And None of them would really listen to him and they say, oh, it's not my department. And he described sitting in this detention centre and thinking, well, maybe I've made the mistake. Maybe I am a, uh, an illegal immigrant. It, it, it kind of almost makes you mad, this process of, of not being believed and not being listened to. It's really painful. The laws had, had changed in a number of ways over the years, so they'd been pushed over this invisible line between being legally here and illegally here. So they'd been illegalised by the system, and they had no idea. No one had really advertised the, the changes. It really undermines your sense of where is home, who am I, where do I belong, is this, is this my nationality or am I something else? It's a very, very alienating and upsetting process. Shockingly, nobody seemed to notice that thousands of people were being impacted by what started off as a government policy to curtail illegal immigration, but subsequently spun off out of control and seeped into civilian life, affecting some of the most vulnerable communities in the UK. I think what's really um, staggering about this scandal is the extreme things which happen to people without really anyone paying attention. So people were deported or, or people were removed to countries which they had uh, no real connection with. I spoke to one woman who'd um, lived here um, all her life and who received the same letter when she was um, in her late 50s saying, you're here illegally, you have um, no right to be here. If you don't return to the country of your birth, you are liable to detention, deportation. Despite the fact that she'd lived here for 50 years, she got that letter and she thought, well, I better return then. And she did. And it was just this kind of extraordinary um, fear that these Home Office letters um, instill in people, even if they are here legally. Things eventually started changing, thanks to the work that Amelia and other reporters carried out in telling the stories of the Windrush victims. So I've been a journalist for um, 15, 20 years, and I've never written about something that has had such an extraordinary impact. So already 6,000 people who didn't have documentation now have documentation, and 4,500 of them have been recognised as 
British citizens, um, people who were stuck in Jamaica, unable to return to this country, have been able to return by contrast people who weren't able to go back to Jamaica because they weren't able to travel because they didn't have any passport or any documentation at all have been able to travel back, visit relatives that they hadn't seen for decades. People who'd been sacked from their jobs have got their jobs back. People who've been made homeless have got their homes back. So um, it is the most extraordinarily um, positive outcome from a from a bit of journalism. And it's Heller's catch-22 catchphrase that lets us see these absurdities exactly as they are. He offered us the vocabulary to diagnose the problems and to counteract them. Just as he offered a sense of hope at the end of the novel, when we learned that Orr, the character who shared a tent with Usarian, had learned how to beat the system. He'd learned to crash the planes on purpose to avoid combat. Similarly, with the Windrush scandal, it took an incredible effort by an incredible number of people to showcase the absurd cruelty of a bizarre bureaucratic system and government policy that had utterly forgotten what it was supposed to protect. Now we know that um, thousands and thousands of people were wrongly classified by the Home Office as illegal immigrants. We don't know the the full number, but there is a compensation scheme um, underway by the government and they're saying that they expect up to 16,000 people to apply. It could be more. We, we don't know the full scale. And we're talking about hundreds of millions if, if, if that number applies. That's right. So they say they could end up paying out anywhere between 200 million and 570 million pounds in compensation. So Sam, what did you think of that? It was a fascinating conversation between Isabel and her dad and a fascinating interview that you did with Amelia. Yeah, it's another it's another interesting one because going into it like like with 1984 again, I was a little bit I felt a little bit overwhelmed because I was like, oh, it's that tricky thing of something being so much a part of everyday speech that you almost don't know where to start with it. So, the follow-up question to that is when something's everywhere, you know, how accurate of a fiction prediction is it really when it's so ubiquitous? It's it's kind of like, I mean, I'm obviously a person that wears glasses, so I I, I kind of see it, you know, this very fashionable glasses. I might add, this is true. for the benefit of the listeners. This is very true. <laughs> it's kind of the sensation that if these words weren't coined and if they hadn't sort of shaped the world that we live in today, it's almost as if you just didn't have the glasses and you're seeing blurry and then you know catch 22 comes out and you're seeing the world through that lens and everything sort of becomes clearer the absurdity in a sense becomes more understandable do you know what i mean yeah that's a good analogy i like the glasses analogy that's what i mean so that's the ultimate fiction prediction in my mind right because the moment that these works of fiction come in to the world and obviously they have a massive impact in in the time of writing in their contemporaneity to me what makes these books the ultimate fiction predictions is that they are able to diagnose a problem that arises because of the complexities of modern society each of these books that we've covered Mm, okay here's the here's the big question you ready yes so hit me at the end of each episode we've obviously discussed how you know how accurate a predictor the uh, the working question we've been talking about is so now that we're end of se- at the end of season one 
We should try, probably try and out of all the out of all the topics we've discovered, the diverse range of topics. I reckon each of us should try and pick the one that we think is the most accurate a predictor of something. All right, it's difficult, isn't it? I I really like the Titanic one. I oh, have to I say, I was not expecting you to pick that. Yeah, it's just yeah. I I, I, I wasn't expecting I, <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to pick it because it was one that I I planned. I know. Yeah, well, there you go. I'm, <laughs> I'm an honest human being. I, I, I really liked that one. I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed listening to it. I, I just thought that the, the, the whole, the whole process of it coming together and Dave ringing you out of sort of out of oh, the blue. Oh, Dave! I'm glad he's getting another mention in the finale. Yeah, hi We're Dave. Gonna have to, hi Dave. We're gonna have to bring him back for season two. Yeah, I would love to, but you know what I mean. It was sort of like. We weren't expecting it, and it sort of came out from left field, and it, it just all came together because it was potentially the most, as you would like to say, accurate fiction prediction. But yeah, that was that was fact. The thing I find hard is comparing the accuracy of some of these because they're so they're quite different in terms of their like their scope and things like that. Like for instance, the Titanic one, I would agree that it's very very eerie and very accurate a predictor of something that happened um however it's hard to compare it with stuff like 1984 and catch 22 because they're hugely impressive predictors in many many ways so that was that's just one prediction and these are such good predictors that they've yeah as we said been ushered into everyday language so are you trying to say that your favorite episode is one of mine <sighs> Well, I think 1984, particularly because it was helped by all the different kind of perspectives you brought in through the interviews and the different areas of the world that we looked at and all those different... So we had, you had the kind of detail of different examples, but then also, yeah, that kind of over, overarching, um, overarching nature of it. So that was definitely up there for me. But of course, you know... <laughs> Don't say it. <laughs> Of course, I mean it is tri- it is tricky for me being such a big Stephen King Don't fan. <laughs> no, I, okay, I'm not going to say the Stephen King episode. You absolute troll. <laughs> if there's one, th- okay, I, I know we can't give too much away about season two, but if there's one thing I would like to put my foot down on is that Dave is going to come back and Stephen King is going to come back. We'll see. It's probably going to be one or the other. <laughs> Don't make me choose. <laughs> no, but uh, maybe we should actually we should probably give sort of a a little hint about what we're planning for the next season even though this is the end of season one we'll come back with a couple of bonus episodes during the summer we're not it's not going to be just a a kind of empty block of time between the second season we're definitely planning to do to put some more stuff out if you would like to be more involved in the planning process please get in touch with us we're all on twitter um Again, it's Sam Hasem, uh, it's Nikolai underscore Nikolov, and it's predictions underscore pod. Please tweet any of those accounts with any ideas, stuff you'd like us to look at in the second season. Um, and please do, um, if, you've in, if you've enjoyed the season, or even if you haven't enjoyed the season, you know, please do leave us a review. Um, we'd really love, yeah, really love to get your feedback. You know, you could even pop a few ideas in there. We'll read all of them. Again, as always, thanks so much for listening, and... We'll be back sooner than you think. We will. Yes, thank you so much, guys. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll speak to you again soon. Bye. Bye. Fiction Predictions. Fiction.
Fiction Predictions is a Mashable podcast created by Nikolai Nikolov and Sam Hasem. The theme song was composed by Kasberg. The artwork was designed by Bob Algarine. And this episode was edited by me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.